Hey, it's Luke. This week we are back with the third installment in our mini range of care series on productive disagreements at an interpersonal level and a societal level through the lens of family therapy and restorative justice. So we've got ourselves a little Russian nesting doll of range of the podcast, range of care, the sort of spin-off series, and then restorative justice and societal repair as a mini series of the range of care series. Longtime range heads will remember this began as a conversation about how to have productive disagreements and quickly became a discussion about how do we change our criminal legal system and maybe on our way to that, a precondition needing to be changing our entire society and how we relate to each other. So a small project, <laughs> but the conversations have been really great and hopefully productive for you. They've been really clarifying for me. Today's conversation is a little bit more discursive. We didn't have quite the same roadmap in our heads that we usually have for these episodes. So it ended up being more of a conversation, a little bit more free flowing. And I really love how it turned out because at least as I was listening back to it, I got a sense of three people from three pretty different backgrounds who spent a lot of their days concerned about three or more than three different things. We all have our little silos, our areas of expertise, our areas of concern and interest, but we all sort of find them coalescing or pointing to a change that maybe needs to happen at a societal level before any of the work any of us are doing can really be brought to full fruition. Like in Meg's family therapy practice, how can we teach our kids and ourselves to have open-hearted discussions when society teaches us overwhelmingly to seek punishment? Ditto for Inga, the criminal legal system. How can we do restorative justice when the system wants retribution? And society wants retribution. And then for me, I feel like this touches literally everything we cover or close to everything we cover at range. And most recently, spending the last week reporting deeply about Camp Hope during the heat wave, thinking about what would homeless policy look like in a society that didn't systematically criminalize poverty. We probably wouldn't call it homeless policy, actually. It would probably have a different name that's more evocative of a society that looks at things like houselessness as a systems problem and not an individual failing problem. But again, just read the comments on any story about homelessness and you'll see how far we have to go to open up our hearts and shift the focus and shift the blame or the responsibility, say, away from the individual actions of individual people toward the things that we actually could collectively solve, which are the real pervasive societal barriers to keeping housing as just one example of many. It might not at first blush seem like those things have much to do with each other at all, but as this conversation wears on and then the more distance I get from it and re-listening to it now, the more it feels to me like they're all inextricably linked. And not only that, maybe they're just different ways of getting at the same societal sickness. They're all symptoms of the same disease that we have replaced over time the desire for repair with the desire for punishment. And we've taken sort of a regulating, a societal regulation role away from communities, however those communities are defined. It could be an extended family. It could be a neighborhood. It could be an affinity group. 
we've taken the self-regulating processes of those communities and abstracted it, given it away to the state. That was a big part of the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago in our last episode, how we've taken the victim out of criminal legal proceedings and replaced them with the state. So the victim doesn't get a say in what happens to the person who did them harm, only the state does. And it really started to click for me as I asked Inga a question about an aspect of restorative justice that's always kind of honestly bugged me. There's the interplay between the person doing the harm and the person who was affected by that harm. And sometimes there's a vague, gauzy notion of how either the victim or the perpetrator's community, the role they might have to play in negotiating and navigating a reconciliation that holds the person doing harm responsible to their community while also allowing the community of the person harmed to support them through that process. So let's just briefly hear the beginning of that exchange. If I went out and stole something from Meg, because I honestly needed something, money, whatever, what was going on with my community that I didn't feel like I could ask for it? Was everybody just as hard up as I am and I didn't feel like I could? So I guess what I'm saying is we've got the accountability aspect is the thing we're obsessed about in the normal criminal legal system. What it feels like that sort of more holistic modality would still be accountability to your community, maybe not the state, to and the community. And your community is accountability to, to you. you. Well, that's what I'm saying. And accountability to the victim. and support. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> that's why it works when it works, because everybody is finally fucking dialed back into what is going on in their neighborhoods. Sorry, Mom. Sorry. I'm so sorry, but I can't say it with, yeah, <laughs> without no, like without the emphasis there. Like, pay attention to your people, your circles, your communities, and that's that's how we do it, folks. We spend so much time thinking about accountability. Do we spend any time at all thinking about support? Even if somebody does something pretty bad, either to you interpersonally or criminally. What would it look like to think about reconciliation through a lens of support, maybe support first, or certainly support equal to accountability? Would that fundamentally reframe some of the conversations we have with ourselves, and I know I have in my head, that lead to a sense of individual failure, individual recrimination, and away from societal responsibility, and ultimately societal repair? So then from there, the conversation shifts to kind of a thought experiment. What would it look like to drastically reframe society towards support and dialogue? And if we were able to do that, would all these other things that we're thinking about, all the different little facets of the prism, if we change the shape of the prism, do we start seeing things, those individual facets in a different light? Do we start saying, oh no, actually punishment isn't the most important thing here because the goal is to reconcile ourselves to each other, to get back into community with each other. And so warehousing this person and punishing them into oblivion is not actually the goal here. If the goal is reconciliation, that can't be the process. Because reconciliation fundamentally can't happen if we're separate from each other. Either literally one of us is walled up behind bars or figuratively grandpa and I have a disagreement politically and we don't talk anymore. It's a pretty dynamic discussion. For some reason, I sound like I chased a bunch of beta blockers with a bunch of cough syrup because I sound like I'm asleep the whole time. I don't know what my deal was, but I was very engaged in the moment. It didn't come through in my voice for some reason. And I think you'll be really engaged by it too. 
and maybe not even for where we get, but just sort of the meandering path we go on thinking through just the beginning stages of what might be a pretty fundamentally different way of existing and relating to each other. You can't navigate to a new destination without at least a point on the horizon you're trying to get toward. Doesn't mean you know the path, but you need to at least be able to point your compass somewhere so that you can start making your way toward it, even if you don't know the obstacles you're going to find along the way. And so that kind of feels like we're, what we're trying to do here is like establish a point to navigate toward. Okay, I think that's good for an intro. Had a long week last week with all the Camp Hope coverage. Hopefully you caught up on that. If you didn't go to our site, pretty much every like, 60% of the content on the page right now is, is Camp Hope related, related to the heat wave, related to an absolutely preventable human tragedy. So last week was a very long week. This week is a very short week because I took Monday off for a bachelor party. And then Friday, I'm out for the rehearsal dinner for the wedding of none other than this week's guest, Inga Laurent, to her amazing fiance, Matt. Congratulations to both of them. The world is a more loving and better place for that union. But as I sit here recording this, that is all in our collective futures. In your individual present, right now, range of care, Inga, Meg, and a little bit of me, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. So last time we met, we were talking about restorative justice. We're here today with Inga, Luke, and me, Meg Curtin Raybear, and this is Range of Care, and we're going to dig right in. There's not a lot more I want to say about why it's important to disagree. I think we can all agree that there's so much to disagree on, even more than the last podcast. So let's just dig in. One of the things that came up from one of our listeners is the question of how. How do we make restorative justice happen? So Inga, I'm going to let you take it away. Okay. So I have a quick clarifying question. Are we asking about how we make restorative justice happen like in the United States as a whole, or is it more of a technical question on how does restorative justice actually unfold in the real world in sort of a practical sense? Yes. Okay, both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the the individual who asked this question, because I happen to know them, was probably thinking more of the first one. But quite frankly, I want an answer to the second one. I'm curious about the overlays with family interactions, socials. But let's start with, I don't know, which one feels like the best one to start with? I think we would start talking more practical and then work our way out. Mostly restorative justices come up in the context of criminal law. It has applicability in other places, but it's been applied in the criminal fields because it's an inter, it's a criminal justice or criminal legal system intervention. So family group conferencing, for example, which really comes from the Maori people from New Zealand who have been using this for time immemorial, that's the basis for family group conferencing. It comes out of, it's been adapted to the modern day criminal legal system, essentially, a youth gets in trouble, 
and they refer into the system and they use cultural practices along with bringing that person into the community. So the reminder of who they are as an individual, what they mean to the community. And they go through a series of workshops, individual workshops, cultural workshops that remind them who they are, uh, who they have the capacity to be. And it forms this kind of circle around the person and they have ceremonies that filter around it as well. And they go through like a kind of a, you know, a progressive plan and then they can graduate right from the restorative justice program and the family is involved and they come in and you address sort of the root causes of what led to this sort of going off of the path in the first place. So that is like, it's a combined model, right? So it's not exactly family conferencing outside of the criminal legal system. It's trying, it's in a way it's trying to marry the two, but most often how we see restorative justice come up in modern day is in victim offender dialogue, which is the typical criminal justice restorative justice idea that you take parties and you put them together and let them sort of solve their differences. Restorative justice has been applied in school settings to be preventive. It's been applied in work settings to be responsive. So it can be applied elsewhere. It's been applied in circles that aren't attached to legal sort of systems, but the majority of what we know about it is really operationalized in response to be an alternative to what's happening in the criminal system, if that makes sense. I mean, it does. It makes good sense. But it's hard to implement? Definitely. (laughs) It's hard to implement because you have to have people and resources willing to sort of take the experiment. So last time we were talking about this sort of being an experimental way of doing justice, right? So resources would have to be allotted and diverted into this pool. So oftentimes what you see, especially like across the United States, for example, is restorative programs that are running through community programs on a sh- like sushi, what is that? Sushi. sushi? Thank you. On a, on a, sushi. On a sushi budget. It's a sushi budget. Well, that's actually a nice budget, so yeah, probably not. Say, yeah. <laughs> is it an uni budget? Or? <laughs> a shoestring budget, you know, that are just like they're they're getting a grant here or there. And so what we don't have is systematized programs. We don't often have state-sponsored programs. We have lots of people doing restorative work, but it's sort of on an individual basis. It's here, there, it's countywide, it's this community program. Uh, And so maybe in some ways that's good, right? Because we've seen how well states run the criminal legal system. (laughs) So in some ways, do you want it to be sort of more grassroots? But then what we lose, right, is the network, the training, the baseline, the best practices. Right. You're building from the ground. Well... Yeah, I guess from the ground up in these small ways and hopefully eventually it becomes big enough to get that bigger attention. Yeah. Well, if the primary intervention is starts with cops or, you know, jail or the prosecutor's office or all of the above, then you have to get it's not just the buy-in between the person who's harmed or the person doing harm, but then the whole system that has been built up as we discussed last time to turn those folks into adversaries. And really sort of exclude the victim entirely and make the harm doer and the state the co-combatants. And so the shoestring budget is definitely one thing. But then also, conceivably, if it wasn't some sort of ad hoc grant funding pilot program sort of situation, you would be diverting resources that a lot of these folks are pretty committed to spending in traditional criminal legal ways. You'd have to be diverting those to something 
an intervention like this. Yeah. Right. So that's a question I have. From my perspective, positive change happens slowly. Sorry, but negative change is a bit explosive. Positive change, good, strong, lasting positive change tends to be slower. And ultimately, are there some really good reasons for that? But if we if we put that on the side and just sort of acknowledge that it's there, I mean, we talked about this last time. Is it good to do something one way because that's the way it's been done? When When is it okay to look at something and acknowledge, mm, not really doing for us what we want? How do we have that? You know, if we're talking about implementation, how is it done? How do we create an environment in where, where restorative justice works? There's the practical applications of it like in a situation what would it look like exactly but I think before we even get to that my question is how do you bring up the conversation where is it appropriate to notice this would be a good place for this conversation I think the answer is everywhere right so I've had these conversations with so many different groups of people right with their judges there are a ton of judges who are interested in restorative justice because they feel like their hands are often tied Mm. They feel like they don't have agency, which is a whole nother matter, because if the judges don't feel like they have agency to make any changes within the system they control, we have a serious problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I went and I've spoken like with our judges. I've spoken with our criminal, you know, we used to have a like a criminal task force here, right? We've spoken with them. The school districts are trying this. So we've spoken with school districts about this stuff. It's interesting victims advocacy groups, right? So I did a panel presentation, I would say almost two years ago now, with Lutheran Community Services, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're very unsatisfied with the way that victims are treated in the system. And so they're trying to think about alternatives to how they, you know, interact with justice issues. So I think the answer is everywhere, right? We need to have these conversations, especially important is having voices of folks who have been impacted by these systems. I don't know. I feel like that's often left out of these conversations. And right, Lean Pavey uh, from, I can't remember what her organization was I did called. the time originally. I did the time, okay. right? Is she still, she's, she's still with mm-hmm. them? Yeah. She's still with them. Well, she is still with them, but they have a program now. It's called Revive Reentry Services. But, you know, she says all the time, people closest to the problem closest to are the closest to the solution. Because I know you've done Fulbright work in Jamaica. You just got back from a trip to Colombia. Is there a place where whatever power structure we're talking about, whoever has the sort of power of the state, the authority to mete out punishment, basically, whatever the context is, whether that's a school or a government or whatever, is there anywhere that you know of that's like wholeheartedly bought into this? No. Maybe a tribal government? No? No, not really. I think we're in nascent stages. It's emerging. Yeah. We're, Contemplation. Yeah, exactly. Everywhere where this is being implemented is basically sort of piecemeal within smaller subsets of systems. So in New Zealand, for example, in Australia, they're using it with juveniles. And so they take a particular population and and use it there, right? That's really how it's being implemented. Jamaica is trying to roll out a nationwide restorative justice policy for the country, but they're in their beginning stages of rolling that out. That is not anywhere near sort of like fixed and it doesn't it doesn't have the bridge yet to interact with like, well, all crime, like what crimes should be included? And, you know, so it's really low right. level, right? you know. And I mean, you, you went to Jamaica like five years ago. Mm-hmm. 
it was in its beginning <laughs> stages then, and you're saying it's still in its beginning stages now. So like this, even for a country that is ostensibly committed, committed to it, mm-hmm. it's really, really slow. Mm-hmm. I feel like this speaks to a later conversation about why change is hard. Why there's a whole entire area of research on the cycle of change, why we go through so many stages and then tend to go back through those stages over and over again. Why recovery? I mean, there's just so many aspects of life that are connected to why change is hard for us. To your point about why we have to have the conversations everywhere, that makes a lot of sense. If, If change is hard and we're resistant to it, then if we limit where we're having this conversation, the change will be even slower. And so there's two things on that. Like one is we have to talk about it because nobody's aware that anything else exists. So first thing we have to do is talk. We have to speak it into existence, put it into the world so that people can start framing new conversations they didn't even know they could have, right? So that's the first part is the generative, like understanding that there's a different way of existing in the world. And so that's super important. So I want to ask for people listening, could that be as simple as for whatever reason you're engaged in something legal and you just ask, is there an option for restorative justice? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that could get the conversation. And Lisa Judge would be like, oh, I'm, I've never heard of that. Or, or what is that? Or, or no, we don't have anything like that here. Maybe we should investigate that, right? So certainly asking. Speaking at any time that you get the opportunity to do so would be great. We're starting to see more filmmakers take it up. It's starting to be portrayed more on podcasts. We're seeing more literature develop. We're seeing some books develop. So it, I think it's coming. It's unfolding. But it just takes a long time. It's a paradigm shift. And that is something that's going to take an immense amount of time. This might not be an answer you know, and it's going to maybe open up a whole can of worms about stuff we haven't really talked about yet in this context. Like, where does restorative justice fit in the sort of ecosystem of reform to like abolition with like things like prison abolition, the really serious, intense forms of police reform? Is it part of that conversation or is it sort of off on its side? It kind of feels... Like when I hear people who are saying I'm a committed abolitionist, and by that they mean I'm committed to envisioning a world where prisons don't exist, jails don't exist, punishment doesn't include warehousing people at all or to the extent possible. I don't really ever hear people bringing up in that conversation, bringing up things like restorative justice, even when they do bring up other diversionary tactics. Ma, I think that's a good question. I think the answer is we don't know because... If you look at a spectrum, we have like the criminal, the current criminal legal system at one end of the spectrum, and we have transformative justice at the other, which is what you're really sort of talking about. Restorative justice lies somewhere in between the two, primarily because even though it can be done individually, I think where most restorative justice advocates have sort of gone is that it will be state-sponsored program, which allows Mm. a diversionary track, right? And so you're bought in, you have a partnership, right, with the state. Now, I think ideally, I think those of us who are committed to the restorative justice work would say it needs to be state-sponsored, but the state also needs to give control to the people implementing it, right? So 
yes, we can have the reporting mechanisms and things like that that have to happen to be approved for grants and funding and things like that. But you really are going to let the expertise, the people with the lived experience, operate these programs. And you're going to let them operate the programs in accordance with the values of restorative justice, not the values of the dominant criminal legal system. And that's super important. And we have not broke that barrier yet. And that's really scary, I think, for people like me who are bought into the idea of restorative justice is that it's going to be co-opted or it is already being co-opted by someone else's value system. And we're not staying true to the essence of what restorative interactions are. It won't work if we're measuring only recidivism. Like, luckily, the byproduct is often reduced recidivism, but that's not what we're trying to show. It's a theory that's based and steeped in need and relational theory, which means what you want to see is improved outcomes in relationship. And what you want to see is a decrease in the needs gaps that were available before the situation emerged. And those are part of our metrics. And that's why restorative justice can't be transformative justice, because right now we're stuck in sort of this box with the wrong sort of indicators. And people who love and believe in restorative justice are still sort of like playing the game of having to fit within the dominant system. And so we're not in transformative space because we're sort of like still saying, oh no, this can be done as the alternative to, uh, it can go alongside the criminal justice system. It's like the, the mid point before the transformative movement of abolition. So in fact, it might actually be what we need because on the road, we're not going from what we have now into abolition. So restorative justice might be the touch point that is the transitory form of justice that relates and gives more power back to the people involved in the conflict, which takes away some of the state and the state agrees to abdicate some of that. They let go of some of it and they give it to the people who are adversely impacted and who can, you know, put on the restorative programs. And then by that releasing, hopefully what you see is less and less state control of these type of outcomes. Right. So where does the word healing fit? Healing is a strange word. Mm. <laughs> I think... But I like that word. <laughs> That's like a, a tool of my trade. Yes. Okay. So the reason I get I hedge on healing is because we have such a shallow, I think, expectation of it. Well, I want you to tell me more. Okay. So restorative justice often gets used and thrown in with the word healing. And I just think, no, restorative justice is the pathway that starts the opening process, but it is not going to achieve healing. And in fact, victims can get very upset when you say, oh, you're going to go through this process, this healing process, this conversation, and then it gets left there. And that's part of, I think, what's so short-sighted about all of our systems in the United States is it's we put people through a process and then expect the results to be, ta-da! <laughs> right, the same for all of them. Now you're done. Now you're healed. When the commitment must be an ongoing, longer commitment to healing, yes, the process itself is going to start those things or begin those that those processes for that person individually, but it's not the end goal. And that's what I get worried about because if you just throw the word heal on top of something like, oh, this process is going to be healing. People say that all the time. And I'm just like, that is, that's not necessarily what's going to happen. The person may still be completely angry 
when they come through this process. It's theirs to feel what they feel. Like we never control outcomes. We only control process. And we put in place a process that allows the dignity of each person to be recognized, but we cannot move or push a person towards reconciliation or healing that has to come from naturally, that has to come from them, right? It has to come from the people who are involved in that room and whether that's the space they want to go into. A positive restorative intervention doesn't necessarily mean that people are healed. It means that people had the opportunity on an equal playing field to reveal who they are and their truths and the circumstances that surrounded their situation and how they feel and how they were impacted. But that's all. So to relate. Mm -hmm. They have the opportunity to relate. Yes. If healing happens, great. Well, healing then becomes more, it's more of an individual thing anyways, right? Well, always, always. Because there's a big parallel here with family or any kind of interrelational therapy work in that when you bring more than one person into a therapy environment, the entire focus shifts from content to process, mm-hmm. which is what you're describing. Exactly. Because yes. we never control outcome. We can't control results. It's not the goal. No. And that's not the goal. Exactly. And I think we lose that thread sometimes as restorative justice practitioners because it does work so often that we blow through, you know, we can kind of be like, oh, look, we we healed, 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 healed. No, no, no. We got fidelity to the process is what we're about. So tell me more about how that shows up in your profession. Well, when you bring a couple together or a family together, you know, you're going to talk about the content, much like I imagine, you know, if you're going through a restorative justice process, you're going to talk about the incident or incidents, but it's in the context of the how not the why or the, or well, maybe why comes up a little bit, but not, not the what as much as the how. How are we talking about this? And what we do as therapists is often we'll look at the how initially, kind of allowing people to talk about whatever, you know, pick a subject. Because the idea is when they leave, they should leave with the skills to insert subject matter here and feel connected and valued at the outset. And so ultimately the goal is to look at what's working in the dyad or triad from a communication standpoint and strengthen that and look at what's not working and repair that. And then they practice. So again, it really is about insert subject matter here. And it's very interesting because a huge amount of what what happens in family therapy is to stop the checklisting oh, well, while we're talking about this, then I also want to talk about this and talk about that. Because what's very interesting about that, and that that's actually what brought me to ask the question about healing. Because a lot of times people will come into a therapy environment with a partner, and the assumption is that healing is, I have this list, I've been collecting it for the last 10 years, mind you, of all the things that, I, that I've been wronged by, you, you know, over. And I'm going to feel better when we have had a chance to talk about all these. And then I say, so we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about how you talk and maybe we'll pick one or two of those things to go through. And then you go home, you're done. You can do this. And what I really love about it and why this restorative justice conversation means so much to me is that to be able to do that on the criminal justice level, we don't always see people, like people don't leave with all 10 items. They don't leave healed in quotes. They leave with the skills to remain connected and to create their own healing if and when they want it. So what they leave is empowered. 
So this is fascinating because I think what I'm understanding is restorative justice is a piece of this. So what you do have oftentimes, and it depends on the relationship dynamic. Oftentimes when we talk about restorative justice, we're kind of saying in like the context of stranger crime, but it does happen with family crimes as well. But typically victim offender dialogue is thought of like, oh, this stranger did something to you. Right. I don't know their context. I don't know them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you're right. You're exactly right. It's kind of frozen in in time and you don't have to get through 10 years of stuff. You only have to get through the incident. And then of course the context around the incident, what led that person to make those decisions, who they are as an individual, but it's hyper-focused on one piece of time. So I think it allows us to bring in some of these therapeutic interventions, but to hyper-focus and as one, usually this happens in, it unfolds in a series of sessions because first you have to make sure people are ready and able to enter into that space. But the encounter is usually one long session where we have the opportunity to unpack and dialogue around one flashpoint incident and completely sort of unpack and debrief that. Whereas you are focusing on the skills, we're really focusing on the content of that one event. With the assistance of enough support that the conversation goes the way it should. So almost like the people involved in the restorative justice process are the process that you would exactly. teach in family therapy. We're holding the process for people who are too injured to learn the skills at that moment. It's not to say that they won't learn the skills or ha they might have the skills but not have the skills in that moment because what happened was too traumatic. The people around them hold the process for them so that they can just get to the content of the matter. And that is, in that sense, what we're really trying to do is really go to the root of an issue uh, and allow the space for that. So it would be like, if you did that in an elongated sort of series, it sounds like is what happens with Essentially, therapy. you're, yeah, you're teaching the family members to be the, the people that hold that process. Yes. And then training them to have those conversations. They just, it's within rather than for. If this is how restorative justice is working, then it should work really well when it's practiced in that way. Because what we see in interrelational dynamics is when people learn to listen without bias. So what's called unconditional listening. And I will clarify this because it's super important. That does not mean agreeing. Unconditional listening and agreement do not equal each other. Unconditional listening is the ability to notice your bias and set it on the side and just hold space for this person and listen to their whole story without any bias. And then you get to speak your piece. Yeah. Like you get to have both those things. But when people learn to do that, it changes the way. It actually, you can see it change what needs to be talked about. That's what fascinates me the most is it changes what needs to be talked about. And that's why restorative justice isn't for everybody. There are plenty of victims who are not in space to have a restorative conversation. Yeah. There are a ton of offenders who have not dealt with what really happened, what was underlying it, and they are not in a space to go into a restorative space, which is really hard for people to understand because it's a super powerful tool and people just want to push to be like, okay, now we have restorative justice and criminal legal system problems solved. It is only going to work in specific contexts, and that's why those preliminary meetings are so important because you have to assess whether people are capable of entering into, if a victim is fiery, fiery, mad, cannot see straight, what capacity are they going to be able to have to sit and to really listen, to be in open? In either case, 
in, in a, either case in a justice situation in a family situation you don't proceed if someone is exactly too agitated to to be calm to be able to hold space for someone else you pause you're going to talk about why it's okay to be in this space and how we allow for someone in our community or our family to to have that much emotion but we're also going to talk about how now is not a time to solve problems or fix anything and that's when this conversation drives legal professionals insane because it's individualized it's a process that slows it all down and says, you're not just going to push people through this system because they fit into the box. That is like what drives people nuts because they're just like, well, wait, you mean I can use it here? I can't use it here. How am I supposed to know the difference? And I'm like, that's why the state can't control it because they will not back off enough to be like, no, what's appropriate here is the professionals sitting with these people conducting appropriate pre-sessions and determining if this is a good fit. It's not the judge looking at the scenario on its face and saying, that's restorative justice. You got to get in there and understand, which means it takes time as well. You can see the justice system professionals just like, <laughs> like they're blowing up. Like, wait, it's individualized. It takes time. This is just, it's not going to work. But if you want reparative and healing work, if you want people to transcend their crime, then you have to have something else. And it takes time. It takes slowing. It takes listening and individual assessment. And so that's, I think, the biggest impediment to restorative justice is people are all fascinated by it. They're fascinated by the like buzzwords about it. They love the word healing. They love process, but they don't Don't take... you have a Venn diagram for me? Exactly. <laughs> Once you start unpacking it, once I can say it's taken us two conversations to really start to flesh out and understand what this thing is, and we're nowhere close, then people are just like, mm. <laughs> like it's complete shutdown. So, so I have to share there's a massive parallel with in the therapy world with your interrelational work in that because we come in with this idea that things have to be fixed, the idea that that's not actually what we're going to do, that we're going to talk about how we come together, not what we're coming together over. Often people have to take a step back. And then when it's family work, and if the issue is we're not getting along, we can't get this particular family member to do what they're supposed to. And the conversation is, well, let's do it differently. The amount of resistance, it's really interesting. Change is really scary for people. And I get it. I think I've probably said this before on here, but at the start of the pandemic, I had this realization that control really feels like predictability in disguise. Like I think the predictable nature of our schedules and our lives, we perceive that as control, but we don't, you know, like we could unpack that later. But we see that in families where like, okay, we use grounding, we use punishment but we're here because our child won't listen to us. Okay, so then we start talking about... Okay. Oh, something besides punishment. Yeah. If it's not work, and we have this exact same conversation. So you're telling me that's not working, but you're also telling me you don't want to stop doing that, you know? And so that conversation... Mm -hmm. That's America. The, the parent that crosses their arms and it's like, well, this isn't working. <laughs> and... Okay, America, let's try something else. Let's let's try something that isn't punishment. Well, I never. Right. <laughs> you know? right. I that, would argue that. That would, be yeah. letting, that would be letting the criminals win. The system isn't working for anybody, so let's 
change it, make it more humane. It's like, well, this happens a lot in our criminal legal discourse around people that haven't even been committed. I've said this a million times and we might've even said it in the last episode. We're like, we need accountability for people. And then like the dot, dot, dot is like, but these people haven't even been convicted of anything. And we have this constitutional thing about innocent until proven guilty. But we assume even among people who have not had their day in court, that accountability or some sort of groveling or hat in hand needs to happen even before you've been through the system. We don't want accountability. We want pain. (laughs) Like, (laughs) right. And I don't know. Right. First things first, America has got to come to themselves and be like, I'm mad. I do what I'm supposed to do, what I'm supposed to do. If someone doesn't do what they're supposed to do, it's not that I want to help them. It's that I want to force them into doing what the contract that we agreed upon as citizens. And if they don't, then I want them hurting until they do. And the problem is that doesn't work. No, no, that doesn't work on any level. And what's so fascinating is what you're describing is something that is layers deep. We have this exact same issue in our everyday relationships. So no wonder our justice system is stuck in the same thing. Yeah, it's entrenched. And and I mean, not even to get into politics, but... Since when did we not get into politics? Think about the toxic discourse around things like student loan forgiveness. Like, Mm -hmm. I suffered, so you need to suffer. And until you suffer as much as I suffered, I don't even want to have this conversation. The Bar Association, when we had COVID, we said we're going to have, right? They looked at it, the the administrators looked at it and said, we're going to give diploma privilege during this time of COVID. And so we're going to let people who have gone through three rigorous years of law school practice law. They're going to join. And the results were insane. People are basically holding it against everyone who took diploma privilege because you didn't go through the bar exam. And if you didn't go through, it has nothing to do with the quality of the work. If they're capable, it's just the fact that they skirted their responsibility of taking the bar exam. You didn't go through the pain that I went through taking the three-day exam, right? So now you guys are really in my house. You are. You're in the house of feelings. Bring us. Bring us in. Bring us to your home. what happens when people have feelings they don't like? It was not until the early 1990s that we had any kind of language for emotional intelligence. This idea of emotional granularity. I mean, there's a lot of buzzwords now. But this idea that emotions have a, a place. It's a new discussion and that the reason it's important is because in when we're talking about anything like this any kind of change that involves making things better for everyone there's always going to be disagreement you know that's the overarching point of these last few discussions is that disagreement is such an important part of our lives that we're going to keep talking about it until I don't know we're just going to keep talking about it and the thing is that when feelings make us uncomfortable we have just a a handful of responses that are usually around trying to be less uncomfortable. They're more rigid as a result of that. And they result in the things you two were just describing. These responses that then shut change down when in fact, everyone would feel better if change could happen. I mean, no one is going to suffer from people not being in abject poverty because their student loans keep them there. I I just, I mean, prove me wrong, but I'm hard pressed to find a situation in which people not being in abject poverty from student debt is a bad thing. There was a study, I think it was done in Kenya. I think I've brought this up before. People in Kenya 
who are experiencing depression, do you give them money, just money? Do you give them therapy? Do you give them therapy and money? Therapy and money was great. Just money was just as good or close to as good. Offering just therapy, you might as well have done nothing at all. So to broaden that out in this context, if you're in a state of just like, I don't know how I'm going to survive, how can you do the work we're talking about doing? You can't. You can't do it. But that's the problem. I'm going to, all right, America, this is coming home to you. (laughs) That's the problem with us. We have everything we need and we still feel like it's not enough. Like we're walking around drowning in sort of... And especially this. the people who are in power or at least have enough... Yes. Carry around enough power and privilege to not run afoul The of, middle class is the worst right now. Sorry, guys, but you, but we are. I want to say you are. We yeah, are. Sorry. We are. <laughs> we, have the re, we have the resources that we need to be comfortable and whole and to have our bills paid and we feel endless meaningless (laughs) like that we start covering up with stuff and things so we're never going to change as a society until we stop wanting to hurt people because of this we're hurting and we don't have any place to put it like until we deal with ourselves then we're gonna this criminal legal system we're never gonna get away from it because We want pain because we feel pain on some level, whether we're willing to like really dig down and admit that or not. That's where I think a lot of this comes from. This has felt since maybe 20 minutes ago, like the the next conversation is if there's this chicken egg between something like restorative justice, whether that's actually in the criminal legal system or in a school setting or just in our daily lives, family therapy, whatever, there's the actual societal change. And then there's like a cultural mindset shift that's going to need to be pretty freaking pervasive and pervasive among the people who actually have power or lead to some sort of revolutionary action by the people who have been oppressed by the system to be like, no, we need a different way. Is that something people in restorative justice think about and talk about is like the culture change that might need to predate this thing being adopted widely? And then, you know, to broaden it out of like blue sky, utopian, like how can we do that culture change in our own lives? I think the answer is yes to that question. I think restorative justice practitioners know all this, but like they start looking at it as more of a problem in a box. Oh, we need to have a paradigm shift of the criminal legal system. And that's where the paradigm shift needs to happen. They know it needs to happen broader, but they're like concerned with, but this is what we know and this is what we're concerned about and this is what we're trying to shift. I don't think this happens, right, until we deal with the underlying issue. I feel like there are two pieces to this. One is it has to happen wherever you stand. I mean, I really agree with Inga on that 100%. Whether we're talking about our friendships or our interpersonal relationships all the way up to the to crime, Meg pointed at me when she said friendships. That made me feel good. Oh, I also pointed at you when I said crime, though. So, you know, go with well. that wherever you want. <laughs> um, okay, back to what I was saying. Uh, is that Inga's first snort on the pod? I think it was. <laughs> totally. I think, Inga, to your point earlier, if you look at the language for gender right now, we will never be a binary culture again. Culture again. That did happen with people advocating, but it also happened just by people doing. 
right? My kids generation has just been like, yes, sorry, no, we're using this language now, literally. I mean, that, that I almost got those exact words spoken to me at one point in time, right? Okay, fine. Tell me what I need to know. And so any kind of change like that is a combination. If we wait for it to happen at the systemic level, I mean, therapists are working there, you know what's off to make this happen at that level individually and on any kind of interpersonal relationship in the schools, anywhere therapy is done, there is always a relational component. We are always trying to bring it back to how do you hold space for yourself and honor yourself and also know, oh, that's probably not about me. Let's see what we can do about coming, you know, finding the relational connectivity. That's happening all the time. But that alone is not enough. So at the same time, does it have to be happening anywhere else? It can be. And if each of us is waiting for the other person to do their job, forget about it. It has to all happen at the same time. Because what I see is that when we do it that way, it meets in the middle in such an absolutely beautiful and interconnected way, right? And I go back to gender. We will never have one word for gender again. And that is phenomenal. And we are seeing pieces of it, right? Restorative justice, transformative justice, the line, like sometimes people want to draw the line. Sometimes people, it's like, it's the same thing. It's a spectrum. It's a piece of the, right? It's all like liberatory theory, Afrofuturism, like being good, healthy, grounded individuals, trauma-informed care. Like we are moving there in all these different circles and spheres. I mean, that's what gives me hope more than anything, right? Is like, we just don't want to be miserable, and you know what? That's the thing that I never really understood about like this divide is I feel like we're striving towards being less miserable. And I think that makes people on the quote unquote other side really angry <laughs> because they really want to be less miserable too. But like they're not ready to like follow the paths on how to get there for themselves. Well, there's a fear element, right? There's fear and control, I think, play a really big part in this and it depends on how the world around you talks about those things if you're in a world where those words can be talked about and explored and you can be vulnerable i think it's a little bit safer absolutely if we're talking about permanent systemic change think about what that would take the system as it is is backed up 75 percent or 70 percent of our jail is pre-trial right now by design we just saw a a progressive DA get recalled in San Francisco after two and a half years. And maybe, you know, maybe he didn't do the work he needed to do, but he didn't even get a full term in office. Larry Krasner in Philadelphia doing similar work, I think probably a little bit more savvy. He's gotten his second term, but like who knows? And we're not even talking about restorative justice right now. We're really just talking about harm mitigation at the criminal legal level is like what these folks are mostly like focused on like vacating petty drug crimes, just like not charging people for petty stuff anymore and certainly not holding them in jail. Like we're talking about one or two cities in America, maybe three, because I think San Diego maybe has a pretty progressive DA now. I guess that's why I brought up the question of cultural change, because it's like San Francisco, which gets probably more credit than it deserves for being this bastion of progressivism. And it's actually become kind of a tech hellhole, but that's our stereotype for permissiveness, actually, right? Like it is, this is like cultural permissiveness in a way that, you know, lowercase c conservative folks see as like, this is, this is the Sodom and Gomorrah of America or whatever. If that population can't even buy in for a single election cycle 
because they haven't done the cultural work to be like, no, yeah, this actually really does need to happen and it's going to be tough and maybe it's not going to go great to start with because that's like that's one of the main lessons i've taken away from therapy is that like you're you're gonna suck at this for a while and it's not gonna right. go well and and we're talking about my individual relationship to myself or to some other person imagine what that's gonna look like to commit to that sort of change society-wide so yeah that leaves me i'm and i'm not trying to make turn this into a downer but it really like it's starting to clarify for me like it's not just doing this work wherever it happens to be because one we sh- i think we can all take a little bit of solace and comfort in doing work at the level where we can actually be impactful, which is why like local political organizing is probably better in this moment than just like doom scrolling Twitter about Joe Biden and Donald Trump or whatever. I don't clinically recommend doom scrolling any app, just throwing Mm, that in there. Okay, (laughs) fair. So I guess like that's where I sort of find myself. Restorative justice probably is housed best in like Iowa. (laughs) it's places like where community still exists where i don't think it works in san francisco we're so sort of disaggregated from each other like no good point it restorative justice works in places where you can hold someone accountable where you know each other where you're willing to say you know i knew tommy when he was four and we should have stepped in and we didn't do anything. And now we're feeling guilty about it. And we'd like to find a way to give Tommy an internship so that this doesn't happen again. And that's restorative justice. Well, and to me, I guess that's the question that I like, the piece that I see missing when you're talking about the basis in sort of indigenous cultures like the Maori or like we had the discussion about certain Native American um, modalities last time. It's like, Community is always a part of that. And I don't always see community talked about in this in the narrow restorative justice context. Okay, so if it is a stranger crime, you're not going to be in community with the with the direct, the harmer and the harmee aren't necessarily going to be in direct community. So what do you do? Do you go to the harmer's community and be like, hey, th- he did this thing to this person. Do you maybe invite the other person's yes. community in to like have a holistic conversation? Again, back to that book, The Dawn of Everything. They were talking about how these tribal cultures would be like, even when somebody gets murdered, both of the extended families yes. of the the person who did the killing and the person who was killed come together and decide on something together. Because then it's also like we as the family take some level of responsibility. We see you. We acknowledge the pain that has been caused on behalf of our family. We acknowledge the role we played in that pain exacerbating itself and surfacing in the world And we want to find ways to make it right. And so does the person. And the person wants to, but they only have the limited capacity. We know that because they wouldn't be in the situation that they're in in the first place. So when you're sort of bringing it to their community, that's a that's a place where they feel where they would like to be grounded and maybe where they're alienated from. And why, you know, if you stole if I went out and stole something from Meg because I honestly needed something, money, whatever, what was going on with my community that I didn't feel like I could ask for it? It was everybody just as hard up as I am and I didn't feel like I could. So I guess what I'm saying is we've got the accountability aspect is the thing we're obsessed about in the normal criminal legal system. What it feels like that sort of more holistic modality would still be accountability to your community, maybe not the state, to and the community. And your community is accountability to, to you. you. Well, that's what I'm saying. And accountability to the victim. and support. Yes. Right? that's why it works when it works because everybody is finally fucking dialed back into the what is going on in their neighborhoods sorry mom sorry 
I'm so sorry, but I can't say it without without the emphasis there. Like, pay attention to your people, your circles, your communities. And that's that's how we do it, folks. (laughs) So then, though, wouldn't the argument be that San Francisco is exactly where you need to be having a conversation about restorative justice? Because Yeah, I was being facetious earlier. I know. San Francisco, yes, but... San Francisco, the problem there is everybody is disconnected. I mean, well, they're out, they're, cities are yeah. urban they're, centers. Yeah. You are, literally have buses that you can only get on if you work at Google and then you go to your yeah, office. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. 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 There are other bigger issues. I mean, we haven't even touched the impact of social media on our connectivity and disconnective pieces. I mean, there, there's lots of tentacles that all relate. But the bigger, I, I think I just wanted to make that point for listeners that ultimately what that means is that while our small town communities are where we demonstrate effectiveness of coming together and problem solving our larger communities still need those conversations to be dropped like absolutely don't forget don't forget don't forget because eventually someone will be like oh well what about that someone told me about that can we talk about that and then does it come up does it percolate i mean in therapy i talk to new therapists about this all the time Someone may leave your office and be like, no, this isn't working. Don't assume that's actually the case, especially if they're young. Know that you have likely planted a seed that is just too uncomfortable to contemplate or to deal with right now, but it's still there and it's going to come back around. And I think that plays out on that larger scale as well. I think it feels like when you were talking about Iowa versus San Francisco, you're talking about like a traditional sense of community, close-knit community, and then this sort of modern isolation and alienation. That's actually why, to me, having a conversation like this in a place like Spokane, but small enough to still feel like a place where community exists, and yet is also maybe big enough that it doesn't have the problems of these really impoverished, low-tax base rural communities that are dying and maybe don't have, could not muster the resources necessary to do this systems change. But again, that's why it gets back to culture. It's like, are, what, what's the right size to do culture change? And it seems like Spokane Public Schools is doing this a little bit, but maybe not as like that, like one level up from community where it's like, oh, we all bought in and this really changed the whole community when we did it at the school level. And we're like, now we've seen how it works. And so maybe we want to try it somewhere else. Vermont is one state that is trying to integrate. So they have restorative, a restorative underpinning in their Department of Corrections. But that creates its own set of problems. <laughs> but they are a state that's trying to integrate these models. Um, we, but it's new and it's forming. So I don't, I don't look to them as a, you know, as a model yet because we don't know what the evidence really. They're also bears small, out yet. right? Like, exactly. Like one of the things that makes Vermont a place that can frequently launch things before other states can is how small they are and how there are still communities where politics don't you know like we are coming together over church suppers and Mm -hmm. and fourth of july celebrations and and so frequently and we're helping each other out on the farm that yeah we can sit down and and figure this out together it's inga tapped my maple tree and stole my syrup that's what happens in vermont i think um not quite but (laughs) there is some theft of 
wanted to call you racist, but Vermontist? I don't know. I was trying to make a word. So how do we solve this problem? <laughs> we just keep talking about it and we find as many places as possible to talk about it. I mean, paradigm shifts require regular conversation. But as a therapist, without an ounce of doubt in my body, I will tell you that when we practice something and we talk about it and we keep practicing it and we keep talking about it, it becomes something we do and it becomes something we do well. And, you know, it, it feels like we, we keep hoping that things are going to get a little bit easier, right? Like if I just do this, if we just figure that out, then, oh, there we go. It'll be okay. And what if that's the wrong way of looking at it? What if it's about figuring out how do we have hard feelings? How do we have hard conversations? How do we have difficult disagreements? How do I even engage in the idea of meeting someone who has hurt me? Like if, if those are conversations we have, imagine having that with your child. Their friend hurts them really badly. And instead of, well, we're just not going to talk to them anymore because they hurt you, we sit down and think, Maybe let's, could we just talk about how would it feel? I mean, th there's a way to ask the question properly, right? You don't say we are going to do this because then if that child isn't ready, that just creates a whole different dynamic. But and they we, don't have agency or empowerment in no. that either. So we use an empowerment model and we ask a question, how would it feel to? And then, you know, imagine if we taught that. Learning to read their body language if they shrug their shoulders. Well, would it be okay if I was there with you? You know, what if I helped you? And then we have this conversation that's about, we want to talk a little bit about this. Imagine if that's what we were teaching. That Then now we're building up and meeting what's happening above. And it's just all interconnected. And then it supports itself too. Exactly. I think that's why... I was hesitant. Luke asked me to come on the show quite some time ago. <laughs> and I've been hesitant because this is the conversation that I wanted to have. And I don't know how to say that. It's like, Luke, I just want to talk about our feelings. <laughs> and I want to talk. That's all I say. I want to talk about how broken we can feel and how like we hide so much of that brokenness. And those are the conversations that I really feel like we need to have because otherwise we just keep buying stuff and thinking that's going to solve our feelings of brokenness, right? And I don't think that uh, America moves to, or anywhere in the world moves to a different conversation, a different paradigm, a different system. We can have one in name only, right? Oh, now we have a restorative justice system, right? But it's going to be, it's just going to become a box checking system that looks exactly like what we've got now, right? Um, until we do the deep work of recognizing, I'm sorry, life is hard. Like we talked about this last time, didn't we? Didn't we say like life can suck, <laughs> right? But <laughs> can and does. It can and does. But the model is how do I still have a rich, full, healthy life with the pain? How do I have them at the same time? And until we're willing to have that conversation, which I feel like people just keep running away from, we're not going to have another justice system. Like, And that's why I get so frustrated about talking about it sometimes because it has to happen in, in the context of this larger conversation. Otherwise, we just keep pushing for this thing that's never going to materialize the results that we want because the results that we want are people feeling better and grounded and more grounded in themselves so that they don't have a desire to see someone else in pain. 
so that the desire is that we all have healthy, grounded lives. And it's just, it's insane to me that that's not what people want. Like, it's so shocking to me. (laughs) Well, I think it is, Inga. I think it is what people want, but I think that the path is hard to see and that there isn't a lot of information that helps them visualize that. I believe that the pandemic has done something that I wasn't expecting, which is that it has opened the door for people for whom having strong feelings has been easy to like compartmentalize. That's not a a huge portion of our population is not having that experience right now. They have come to this place of realizing like, oh, wow, these things don't go away. And under, you know, prolonged duress, they're annoying and I have to deal with them. And so I feel like this conversation we're having, in part what made it very exciting for me is that if not now, when? Like this is an absolutely amazing time to be doing this because the number of people we have calling for therapy who are first timers, I mean, I've been practicing for over 20 years and I have never seen anything like this. Number of new individuals, couples, families, people who are just like, I I can't anymore. I need to do something else. In many ways, I feel like the pandemic has pushed the evolution of emotional awareness in our minds and selves. And so does that create this space where conversations like this are a little bit easier to have? I feel like it's an open question, but if we don't do it now, I don't know when we're going to do it. Like this is, and whether it's when we were in Italy this time last year, went to Venice, saw the graves from the Black Death. And that was the beginning of the thing that like ended feudalism was, in that case, it was like mass die-off allowed people to be like, you can't exploit me the way you were exploiting me. I'm going to demand more, which fundamentally changed the the economic structure of the world, ultimately, eventually. It feels like we're in a similar time cycle, well, also economically, because people are like, you know, I'm going, I'm going up to, re- walking up to restaurants and seeing help wanted for dishwashers and they're getting offered 18 bucks an hour, which is something we not would not have seen in 2019. But also, you're right, like people are saying, no, this doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And it's getting sort of framed in this idea of like young millennials and Gen Z just want to work from home so they can have their service animal while they're on their Zoom calls with their clients. And what it's like, that's the old culture and the old paradigm coming into conflict with this new realization. And it's obviously not all millennials. That's, that's the way it gets framed in the media is like Gen Z is killing the office or whatever. But it's really like a lot of people across the board just being like, I don't want this anymore. I want, we need something different. And I think having this conversation now is ultimately also a piece that gives me hope. Maybe the office needed to be killed. I mean, yeah, yeah, I was just thinking about that. This is why like, not? Yeah, exactly. Now we I perhaps digress a little bit, but talk about needing a reframe. I mean, maybe Gen Z killed the office. How about Gen Z brought to light the desperate need for options in oh, our work right. environment? It's interesting, but I had a Gen Z conversation a while ago with someone in HR where there was this like, oh, I don't want to have these kinds of conversations about what they want and what they need. And the person I was talking to said, what if that's not it? What if they speak a different language and we need to learn it? And I was like, oh, crap. You know, thinking, yeah, okay, another thing for me to do, but also recognizing how true that is. Like, we often frame things in in a negative light that I think comes from that whole idea of, if I can just get to point A, it'll be easier. So, you know, when something gets in my way of getting to point A, then I'm going to like think of it like, oh God, why is that there? And so I frame it negatively. But if you reframe it, 
if you look at it and you ask yourself, okay, how did that get there? And what's it doing there? And what's its intent? And you realize, oh, there's no negative intent here. This person just wants a healthy, happy work environment. They want to feel good about their job. And oh, look, the research shows that if they're home and they get to have their service animal, they're more productive, right? But we miss that when we frame it negatively. And I think the same thing happens and, and will continue to happen for a little while when you talk about restorative justice work. People are going to be like, oh, that's going to get in the way of my just getting what I need right now. Maybe, but what if you stepped back and kind of asked yourself, is that really true? Or is that just me feeling uncomfortable with the fact that it's not going to be easier? What if the goal is that we learn to do hard things well? I would like to know how you find your sort of place of deep safety, like what is something that you can always do in the world that like brings you back to stasis? Because, and how this connects to everything that we've talked about is I think like we're walking around so dysregulated. Right. Um, that like everyone, like it's a threat or I want pain for someone else because we're not in good space ourselves. So I'm always curious now and a lot of what I do, like when I'm interacting with folks is people who will let me sort of dig in their heads. I'm very curious about People and their analysis, their sort of self-awareness and knowledge about what things can always bring them back to themselves. So I like asking that question. I think for me, Inga, on a raw, like the first thing that popped to mind when you asked that is, I need my people. When I am feeling dysregulated and unsafe, I need my people. It doesn't have to be a lot. I could just find one person. It can be as simple as a text um, I have a couple of friends where I can read, there are a couple words I can say and they know like they just need to kind of wave or quick call, do you want to talk? Or are you doing okay? And I'll be like, no, just needed to hear your voice. If it's a more in- intense thing, I might show up on someone's porch or grab my partner and can we just sit? Sometimes safety for me is also being alone though. Sometimes if the world is just too much, then candles, quiet, tea, darkness, work really well. I like a huge toolbox. It's one of my favorite things to work on in therapy with people more than anything else is before we add any other layers, before we add all that hard work, right? Let's make sure you know how to feel safe. Right. So when you start doing the work, you can always return to normal. So you can start getting, you can put the, the, put that practice of doing hard work and then coming home and feeling safe. Yeah. You know, and I love that you asked this question because ultimately that's what you need, right? In order to risk being vulnerable, we need to know not, and, and I, here, I want to say this because I, this came up a couple of podcasts ago and I never corrected this. I want to be really clear about something. Safety is very, very important and necessary to be vulnerable, but that does not mean feeling good. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can be super angry and safe. I can be vulnerable and safe. I can even choose to be a little unsafe and still be ultimately safe. And that, I think, is where we get stuck. We think we have to be safe, safe, like as in nothing. Again, if I could just get to safe, then everything will be okay, right? It's that whole idea. And so we think that we have to feel 100% regulated to be safe. No, no. All of our feelings are biologically based. They all are intended to create some sort of action to keep us safe, connected, to bring things forward. And so if I need to take a risk 
because that's ultimately going to make things better. I can do that and be and be safe. It's just easier if I know what my safety anchors are, which is why, Luke, I said that about therapy. If you teach people early on in therapy how to anchor themselves, then it's easier for them to be vulnerable for themselves. So maybe that's the takeaway as we're sort of getting out into this place where people who want to start putting this into practice don't start having those tough conversations wherever you can have them until you know. I don't. I actually don't know what's in my toolbox. I don't even know if I have a toolbox. Well, to be honest, and that's maybe a massive problem. To be honest. Well, I just recommend that you start with you know, that process. Yeah. yeah, and 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 growing the toolbox. You'll notice too. You're going to know if the person you're talking to doesn't have a lot of tools in their toolbox because it feels rigid. And that's not a, you know, again, no judgment. That's just where they're at. The more tools someone has in their toolbox, the more flexible our responses are because we don't, we're not taking the Allen wrench to everything. Here's what I would share. To grow your toolbox, one of the fastest way to, ways to do that, if you think of kind of connecting this to safety, if, I, if safety is me being able to regulate and to regulate, I have to have tools for responding. I need to be okay and non-judgmental about my feelings. I mean, it kind of boils down to that. Like we're talking about safety, which is a feeling, but we also need to talk about what we think about safety because we have feelings about our feelings. And if we are, and we have thoughts about our feelings, if we're angry that we are scared, then that's a judgment. There's nothing bad about being scared per se. There are safety issues. Don't get me wrong. Don't go out and do dangerous things, but there's nothing bad inherently about being angry. Anger keeps us safe. It's valuable. But if we are saying, and and we see this so much, I'm going to say the opposite of Generation X, with the generations before, people brought up in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, where feelings were to be compartmentalized, the accidental message then was, if I have really bad, strong feelings, I'm bad. Mm -hmm. So then guess what? I'm unsafe, right? So yes, that is where the therapy work starts. And with that, if we can equip people with that, and that can be taught in schools, that can be taught in preschools. It is taught in preschools and kindergarten. I just, I don't want to forget that. We absolutely talk about emotional safety when kids are little. We just stop before middle school. It's like cursive. You, you spend you spend all year in third grade learning cursive and then in fourth grade, you just like never use cursive right. again. Okay, well we, oh my God. Never talk about your feelings again. All right, we have just... <laughs> that's it we're done we've solved it all like that's it right there yeah, we no, do that makes we sense teach to me. it i mean think about parents whose kids are fighting and we get down on their level and we talk about our feelings and then for some reason they hit their preteens and we're like yeah you should have it all yeah you go, go do this on your own no yeah. we get super complex developmental stuff going on we have feelings galore and hormones. we're like hormone oh god and you know we're a mess and then if nobody notices we Human beings just do this. We internalize responsibility like, I'm bad. And then we're unsafe. And then the world is unsafe. All right, Luke, you're my friend. (laughs) And I love you. And I want to know about what makes you safe. I I need to think about it, to be honest. I I don't know. And I think, you know, I grew up in a a place where feelings felt very unsafe because I had a lot of feelings as a kid, thoughts and feelings that went against the worldview that I was raised with. And in that worldview, those kinds of feelings have eternal life and death consequences. And I, despite being, this has actually given me notes for my therapist, 
to think about like, oh, I think I might've gotten to the root of something in this conversation where I don't, I don't know if I know how to feel safe with my feelings, despite being a relatively reflective person. I don't, I don't know that I've ever found safety. That's the insight. That's the insight you need. And, and you take that with you, but that's the insight that lots of people struggle to, to look at is this idea that I can notice I'm having feelings, but I have to also not judge them. No. And I, I'm really like just, insanely happy that you shared that because I I think in sharing it it becomes a possibility in the world and I want that for you mm, thanks guys yeah that's an so so do we get to ask back Inga? sure of course what makes you yeah. safe I read mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's something about stepping into another person's world that takes me out of my world enough to connect with like Oh, yeah, these same universal themes are coming up in Russia in the 1700s and <laughs> Fiji and wherever. Um, and there's just something about words and connecting through words. People you've never met will never meet, but you're having an experience together. And I don't know, it just always pulls me outside of my short sighted self and puts me into this place where it's like, Oh, the world fits it, even though we're messy, even though we're in pain, even though we hurt each other, even though all of that stuff, it's because we're fumbling. We're just fumbling through it and we're all fumbling through it. And people can write about that and they can share that part of themselves with us. And we see ourselves in other people's pain and trauma. And it just, it helps, it just helps me feel more connected to the world. Anytime I'm like bitchy or short-sighted or being grumpy or <laughs> too demanding or any, any of that stuff, which always comes out of a place of need and insecurity, right. uh, I can I can check in to a new world hmm. and that helps. So we pause here with uh, just repeating the reflection that the place to start on an individual level is understanding how you feel safe and if if that's not something that you feel like you do well letting it be okay to not take on the bigger things until it is and the practice doesn't have to be huge or complicated but what are the things that help you to calm when you feel overstimulated what are the things that help you to activate when you feel like you're going to crash and then always having it be okay to pause to stop if that doesn't work or if you're you you leave that space of safety and enter back into a space of dysregulation good things like this like good conversations coming together being able to disagree well it's okay if they take time because when they're done well they're just done once that's the true meaning of efficiency yes thanks everyone thank you guys this is really nice That's it for this week. I'm not going to give you a hard sell, but go read those Camp Hope stories. And if you aren't already a member, strongly consider supporting the journalism that was done by the team. Carl Segerstrom, our new writer-editor, kicking ass. Trying to get him to come on the pod. He's a shy boy. We'll get him on eventually to talk about his experience of reporting embedded for an entire week during the heat wave with some of our most vulnerable neighbors. And the stories we uncovered there, not just 
of human misery, and there are plenty of those, but also of community and togetherness in the face of some of the most extreme adversity any of us have ever faced, certainly more adversity than I've ever faced, how the desire for belonging and togetherness still persists, even as, and perhaps strengthened by the fact that it seems like so many of the respectable quarters, quote unquote, of our community are bent on the destruction of these people. If that sounds a little harsh, maybe it is, but please don't make up your mind about that until you've actually read these stories and juxtaposed the stories of the residents of Camp Hope, the humanity of it against the official response, which, well, I guess that's the part I'll let you make up your own mind about. What is not up for debate in my mind is the quality of the reporting itself. I am not the only one who thinks this. That reporting changed the way other publications reported on Camp Hope. I saw it happen in real time. We are already having an impact on not just the news that we as an organization are doing, but the way Spokane as a whole does news. And I'm incredibly proud of that. And we couldn't do it without your support. So if you have the means, please head to rangemedia.co, click the subscribe button and become a member. Why don't you? One other person that brought that series to life was Eric Doxy, who did all the photography for us or all the photography that wasn't Carl's smartphone. Eric's photos really helped put us in a place and would not have been the same series without them. So thank you, man. Credits for this episode. Thanks again to Meg and Inga. The episode was produced by Val Ozier and me. It was engineered by Brennan Pointer, the audio editor on the interview, as always, Connor Bacon. And as always, thank you for listening. As I'm editing through these things for like five to eight hours, and I ask, find myself wondering, why am I doing this? The answer is you. It's always been you. All right, I'm off to help a friend get hitched. See you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.